Welcome to the fourth of four parts of this roundtable discussion with the faculty of the Educational Initiative, Emerging Treatment Options for the Reversal of Oral Anticoagulant Therapy. These podcasts were produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by an educational grant from CSL Bering. In part four, Dr. Edith Nutescu discusses specific issues related to the reversal of target-specific oral anticoagulants with Drs. William Dager and James Kalis. A frequent concern that I hear, and I'm sure you hear, about the target-specific anticoagulants is that they cannot be reversed. Are there really no studies of reversal of these new agents? It's true. There's very limited data uh, regarding reversal with the new oral anticoagulants. As pharmacists, I know we really don't like to hear that animal data is sometimes really all we have to, to work with. And in the case of the new oral anticoagulants, there is a fair amount of animal data, different animal models, trying different reversal strategies with both the bigotran and rivaroxaban. And there's been mixed results in some cases, depending on the reversal strategy. There is some human data as well, but that's less than ideal data. A healthy volunteer study that evaluated laboratory assays, essentially pharmacodynamic effects of the agents and whether those effects were reversible, and then an ex vivo study, which measured laboratory-based tests that basically assessed thrombin generation. But the reality is we have no strong data to say, yes, you can definitely reverse these agents, but we have some hints that maybe something will work and maybe down the line we'll start to see more data and some better data. When these were not controlled in the development of the drug, is that now we have these drugs and we're, we're panicking to find something to treat these problems that we're, we're coming up with them. And so what's going to unfold initially is there's going to be a case report here, a case report there. And I remember that with the Factor Seven with, with Warfarin. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we had to make the decision, there was two cases in the world literature one giving 90 mics per kilo and one giving 30 or so, a low dose. And I've watched how the development of the PCC data and the Factor Seven data has continuously led to starting out sometimes with doses we give in hemophiliacs. And we find out we're giving much lower doses for these anticoagulants. So the first thing is be cautious not to go to some of these pro-hemostatic agents and think that you start with a hemophiliac dose. This is really a different population. They're older and there's a lot of other risk factors present. Then you're going to start hearing case reports. And already there are a couple case reports in the literature here and there with different therapies starting to roll out. Again, uh, how do I underscore the fact that a case report is a signal? It's a, hmm, interesting, but... Uh, it might be what we grasp for, but it's not going to tell us really what the final approach to these therapies have been. I think that what we're starting to see from the literature, the signals for factor seven with the bigotran is it may not be as robust as we had hoped to. There's still a lot of other things exploring the PCC3s, which we only have in the United States, but there's no data with PCC3s with these agents pretty much whatsoever. So we're kind of caught with fewer choices. And then there's some signals and some stuff that, you know, uh, I have been talking about and stuff about maybe using activated PCCs. But we still have a long ways to go to really have a full understanding uh, of how to 
get ourselves out of trouble when we're faced with a patient who's acutely bleeding. I think also that we talk about dialysis, and the challenge is also going to be how do you create ways so that the dialysis catheter can be put in the patient mm-hmm. or other procedures that are really the mainline procedures. How do we get the patient stabilized enough to get to those processes? Understanding that we have such limited data, and mainly animal data and very limited human data, yet patients come in with major bleeding complications like intracranial hemorrhage. And so as clinicians, we have to treat these patients. So how so that we can say we don't treat you because there's no data, right, guiding us. There's no human data or very limited human data. So then how do we, at the end of the day, how do we approach treatment in a patient that comes in with an ICH who's being treated with one of these agents who's anticoagulated? Well, I could probably share from personal experience that one of the first things is I find it's important to be at the bedside and kind of being part of that decision process face-to-face with other clinicians and putting into place whatever resources you have and making sure that it's done promptly. Identifying barriers that may be created that will slow down the process of getting the right therapy to the patient. That's probably the most important thing to do, uh, first of all, because you may know what you have available, and someone might throw out this or, or that product, and if it's not even there and they're waiting half an hour for pharmacy to come back and say we don't have it, that's just lost time. And then uh, we know, like for dabigatran, we can dialyze. Uh, Rivaroxabam, it can't be dialyzed. It's probably too protein-bound. And uh, the next part is with the dialysis is we're starting to understand that the initial study, which says, well, two-thirds of the drug is removed in the first two hours. Well, keep in mind that that study was one in which they gave a 50-milligram dose, so much lower than we give our patients. And the dialysis is done when the drug's still in the plasma. And we're starting to understand that maybe these dialysis processes especially for patients who have higher perceived amounts of anticoagulation, may be necessary for longer periods of time. So don't get fooled on just the the two hours is all we need. It it may need to be prolonged. And then uh, we have to be thinking about the other parts of the care. How do we transfuse the patients? Don't forget that with blood products, you have citrate and other things. You have to give the calcium uh, and putting that on top of... uh, the overall picture because what you're trying to do is stop the bleeding somewhere or get, again, the surgeon or whoever has to go in and do the therapeutic process because we still sometimes practice under the concept for some of these large bleedings that a good stitch in the right place is a very beneficial therapy. So how do I get the patient to that process? From from our standpoint at my institution, I think that because there's some possibility of reversing it, it's automatically thought that we should just reverse the patient or attempt to reverse the patient or other mm-hmm. we really know. And I would say that very few really consider the potential downsides of that, especially considering you're treating a patient with an anticoagulant for a reason. Mm-hmm. There's a bad potential outcome that could occur if that patient develops a, thromb- a thrombus, and then we're going to try and turn off their anticoagulant and give them something that may actually tip things in the opposite direction. So figuring out some way to put the control, for lack of a better term, in the right people's hands of has there been adequate assessment of the risks of 
whether a patient should be even uh, reversed, especially with the newer agents where we have much less to go on in terms of the potential benefit. So I think it's all coming back to having a systematic approach in place managing these patients, you know, incorporating informatics, computer decision support, but have a clearly laid out process where, you know, that timing is critical as Bill outlined and also, you know, decision is made ahead of time, at least, you know, with regards to some of these, you know, factor concentrates, right, on, on, you know, how the process would work. So I think at least, you know, that's the direction we're taking at my institution, you know, while we don't have a current protocol in place, we're working towards that so that all of these unknowns perhaps are outlined and are thought about uh, ahead of time. Yeah, and I would echo, too, that you have to think beyond just the novel or the target-specific mm-hmm. agents. Half these patients are on antiplatelet therapies. Mm-hmm. And so you have to think of the whole system in what you're doing in managing them. And so don't... Be cautious not to focus in on a certain drug on the patient, but focus in on the patient. Great. I would like to thank both of you for your time and expertise on the topic. And with that, I would like to close our discussion for today. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed this. Thank you. This concludes the fourth and last part of the roundtable discussion, a web-based continuing pharmacy education activity based on the mid-year symposium will be available in mid-February 2013. To access this activity and other educational opportunities on the topic, visit the web portal at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash reversal.